I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 17 this morning as we have some opening remarks. Many of you are aware that this Sunday around our nation, churches are recognizing, as well as other organizations, are recognizing the 41st anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision made in 1973. For 41 years, the particular point of the legalization of abortion has highly impacted our country. We've made it our point to address this issue, believing it to be something that the church must be engaged with in a culture war, in a spiritual battle, believing that this is a vitally important topic for our young people to grow up understanding what the Bible says, having a biblical worldview. I always find myself having a variety of mixed feelings as we enter into uh, this kind of a message, this kind of a topic. For one thing, it's somewhat surreal. And I find myself in my preparation with somewhat of a mindset of incredulity. So you've got to be kidding me. We have to talk about moms killing unborn babies? We have to talk about this? We never have a message on why not to put your fist down a garbage disposal when it's running. We never have a message on why not to play with rattlesnakes. Isn't there something just inside of everyone that they know this is wrong? And so I always have a little bit of, uh, you've got to be kidding me, attitude. It always makes me a little bit sad. It's a very sad subject when we recognize the overwhelming tragedy that has taken place in our nation, supposedly a Christian nation, probably no truer words have ever come from our president's mouth than when he said the United States of America is no longer a Christian nation. It offended me when he said it, but I think I have to agree with him. It's a very serious subject. We're dealing with murder. We're dealing with broken lives. We're dealing with tragedy that is so grand in its scope that it makes minuscule the murder of six million Jews in Hitler's Germany. It's also a tough topic in that it's, it's, it's sin that we're dealing with. We're not afraid, as you well know, to preach about sin and what the Bible says. This is indeed another example that sin is worse than you think it is. But we're also dealing with a sin that has the culture's stamp of approval. The Oval Office loudly proclaims their affirmation that this must remain the law of the land. That women should have the right to murder their unborn babies. The Supreme Court of the United States, another one of the highest branches of our government proclaims with great confidence and clarity that this must remain the law. It's also a difficult subject in that we're dealing with scar tissue. More than physical scar tissue, we're dealing with broken lives, broken hearts, wounded conscience. People who even do, who do not know the Lord or do not have a relationship with God through Christ find as they enter in that somehow their emotional framework 
Their psyche is never the same, and spiritually they are convicted whether they understand what is happening or not. And so we've become a savage nation. There's no other way to define us. When you think in the terms that since 1973, the count as of 4.05 yesterday afternoon, and there are notes on your chairs if you care to follow along, based upon the numbers given at www.numberofabortions.com, which is a real-time clicking clock that keeps track of how many abortions are happening based on statistical realities. As of 4.05 yesterday afternoon when this, these notes had to go to print, the number was 57 million plus. Stop and think about that. You've been to the Vietnam Memorial, haven't you? It's one of the most stirring memorials in my mind. Part of it is probably the time that I grew up and, and watching our neighbors have funerals for their young men in our South Chicago community, finding their names on the wall. If you've been there, you know that it just brings chills to stand there and see this 10-foot high granite wall that is 500 feet long and every name of every person who's lost or killed in the Vietnam War is there. It's overwhelming. Over 50,000 names. To put our Holocaust of abortion in perspective, if you were to build a Vietnam Memorial type wall, having somehow given a name to every baby that was prematurely killed from its mother's womb, the wall would be 10 foot high with the same size name, same size lettering. We would get in our car at the beginning of the wall and the wall would run at least 96 miles. At 60 miles an hour with our pedal set, not 59 miles an hour, not 61 miles an hour, at 60 miles an hour we would drive for over one and a half hours past these names. I don't know if even Genghis Khan killed more people than we have killed in the United States when he took over the known world of his day. To put it in perspective as well, if you were to look at a map of the United States, it would be as though somehow you took some kind of a, a bomb and you bombed out of existence the city limits of all of these cities. New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, Philadelphia, Phoenix, San Antonio, San Diego, Dallas, San Jose, Austin, Jacksonville, Indianapolis, San Fran, Columbus, Fort Worth, Charlotte, Detroit, El Paso, Memphis, Boston, Seattle, Denver, Washington, D.C., Nashville, Baltimore, Louisville, Portland, Oklahoma City, Milwaukee, Las Vegas, Albuquerque, Tucson, Fresno, Sacramento, Long Beach, Kansas City, Mesa, Virginia Beach, Atlanta, Colorado Springs, Raleigh, Omaha, Miami, Oakland, Tulsa, Minneapolis, Cleveland, Wichita, and Arlington. And that's the top 50. You have to find the next 10 top cities. It is the same as wiping out the population in the city limit of the top 60 most populated cities in the United States. Blank them out. In the African-American community since 1973, well over 17 million babies have been aborted. More than any other identifiable people group, they have been afflicted with this problem. So, the problem 
number one in our outline. What do we do about this? How did we get here? How did we become a nation like this? Let's quickly read 2 Kings chapter 17. I want you to know that it's not a new problem. 2 Kings chapter 17 lays a groundwork for our thinking today, recognizing that historically this kind of thing has taken place in the past and that the outcome is always predictable. I'm concerned that today be too negative. I don't want it to be too negative, but we need to speak in realistic terms. Verse 6 of 2 Kings 17 says, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria. The reason he did this, verse 7, this occurred. Israel was taken over and scattered because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. In this passage, you can just about replace, every time it says Israel, you can replace it with the United States. And it's exactly what's happened. This occurred because the people of the United States sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt or from another land for religious freedom, where they built their laws upon the word of God. They had been in Israel delivered from the Pharaoh of Egypt, and they had feared other gods, and they walked in the customs of of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. Verse 9, and the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God, but it was wide open in front of their God, things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtowers to fortified cities. In other words, their cities became monuments to the worship of everything except God. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings, verse 11, on all the high places, as all the other nations to whom the Lord had carried away before them. In other words, they became just as pagan as any other pagan nation the world had ever known or seen. Even though for almost 200 years, they said that it was in the one true God, the God of Abraham, that they trusted. And they did wicked things. Provoking the Lord to anger, and they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. In other words, they knew exactly that what they were doing, God had said, Don't do this, but they did it anyway. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer. In other words, preachers all across the country for decades were preaching from their pulpits, Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And they laughed and they mocked and they said, What do you know? Turn away from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes. No, take down those commandments. Keep them out of our classrooms. Sandblast them out of our buildings. The marble in which they've been chiseled by our founding fathers, recognizing that it was only a moral people who could live inside the framework of a constitution and a bill of rights that they had written, and that the whole system breaks down when you become immoral. It doesn't work. In accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants and the prophets, but they would not listen, but were stubborn as their forefathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. In fact, there is no God and we've evolved from primordial scum. You're just a higher form of animal. And they despised his statutes. They didn't just ignore it, they despised his statutes. And his covenant that he had made with their father and the warnings that he gave them. And they went after false idols and they became false and they followed the nations that were around them. 
And they said, what's wrong with us? We don't fit in with everyone else. Who do we think we are? We're not better than the rest. And concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. And they made for themselves metal images of two calves. That had, that, and they made an Asherah. And they worshipped all the host of heaven. And they worshipped the earth. And they worshipped the trees. And they worshipped the grass. And they said that people are ruining the planet. We must worship the planet. People are bad. And so verse 17, they actually burned their sons and their daughters as offerings to their lifestyle. Who would do that? And they used divination and omens. They had a level of spirituality, but it was a perverse from the pit of hell spirituality. And they sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. And so who do we think we are? Who do we think we are to build a nation based upon the commandments of Moses, the same law that was given to Israel, to follow after the same God and then to reject Him and to spit in His face and to deny His commands and to, and to close our ears to His preachers? This morning is a, is, a, is a time to wake up. It is a time to mourn. It is a time to engage. It is a time to call out to God to be merciful to us. So let's stop at this point in our service and let's join our voices in, in praise to the living God. Let's acknowledge His greatness. And in all of that, let's acknowledge that He is a God who has done something about our sin problem. And He is a pardoning God. Praise God for that. And so we've laid a foundation for our problem, number one on our outline. We have a problem. It's a huge problem. The next thing we have to ask then is, well, what is the question? How, what is the most important question that we could answer? There are many questions. One of the questions is then, how do we appease the wrath of a holy God? But where my mind went this morning is to the, to the helping and the assisting of our thinking processes that we as a church not be like the frog in the kettle where we just get used to the norms of our culture. That we lose the fact that, that this is a shocking, heinous thing that is going on. And we, we should never get used to the idea. In Luke verse, chapter 1, verse 44, it talks about the baby leaping in Elizabeth's womb. Later on in Luke 12, 18, in, in Luke, uh, excuse me, Luke 12, uh, I messed up my numbers, didn't I? Luke 144 talks about the baby leaping in, uh, Elizabeth's womb, in chapter 12 and in chapter 18, there are references to little children who are already born. It is the exact same word that is used. The Bible always recognizes personhood. The second argument as to how the Bible recognizes the personhood and the biblical argument for are we dealing with a, a real person is in Exodus chapter 21. And I want you to look there in case you haven't thought about this for a while. In Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 to 25, take a look. One of the things God is doing is laying down law for his people, guidelines, so that they know how to live. And in Exodus chapter 21, verse 22, it says, When men strive together or get in a fight and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him. Okay, so there's a struggle, the woman is knocked down or hit, 
The baby is born. Everything seems to be okay. No one is going to die from it. Everything is normal, although premature. The husband has a right to impose a fine upon them as the judges determine, working with the judges. But, verse 23, if there is harm, then you shall pay life for a life. So if the baby dies, then the death penalty can be imposed. I want you to flip over to Genesis chapter 1 quickly as well. And I just want to emphasize for a minute the priority then of human life. Not only is personhood an argument, biblically speaking, for the fact that we're dealing with a real human. Number two, we're dealing with what the Bible says about the protection of the unborn. Why? Because it's a real human being. Number three, I want you to recognize the priority then of human life. And in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, there is something that is minimized in our thinking and it must not be. And it is the reality that human life is different than all other kinds of life. Human life is different and unique to all other kinds of life. When you deal with the, the kind of life that God created in Genesis chapter 1 and you couple with that with the residual of the fall of Genesis 3, we now have the opportunity for men to hide in weeds and shoot deer and it's okay. You never have the right to hide in weeds and shoot people. The question of war and death in war is a whole other issue. You can't sit down in a pit blind in a cornfield and shoot Humans out of airplanes as they fly over, but you can shoot Canadian geese. Why? Because it's two different kinds of life. It's not the same. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. It is God's will for parents to have babies, not kill babies. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We are to have dominion over that, control it. But humanly speaking, our lives are a reflection of the image of God. We can have relationship with God. God can create. People can create. God can be sad. It's an anthropomorphism. We can be sad. We can have emotion. We can know right from wrong. An animal doesn't really know right from wrong. You say, you don't know my dog. Well, it's not the same. Your dog does not have a moral compass that has been built within. Your dog has been taught that he gets smacked in the head with a roll of newspaper when he goes something. So therefore, he knows right from wrong. So you never heard my parakeet talk. Your parakeet does not have intelligence like a human. Because we reflect an intelligence like God's. We are not God's. There are parts of God that we cannot reflect, such as his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. But God can show love. We can show love. God can be merciful. We can be merciful. Grizzly bears don't know anything about mercy. And love. Compassion. They only know what God programmed in a miraculous and beautiful way. How to take care of their young. So there's a uniqueness here in the priority of human life. Human life is so distinct from all other life that it is not to be destroyed. And in fact, in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, and I want to remind you that this happened well before... The law of Moses was given. 
God said, Genesis 9, 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. God is trying to tell us that people have a different kind of life in them. And it's a life that reflects the image of God. There's a few simple arguments, but I think important arguments, to answer the question, is an unborn baby a real human? We have a real problem in our country. We have rejected God. We have disobeyed God. People tell us that it doesn't matter because unborn babies are not really human. And so we ask the question, is it so? The answer, logically, medically, and biblically, proves to us that it is not so. Unborn baby is not just a massive tissue, but the unborn baby is a real human being. And the final point that we want to look at this morning as we conclude our service has to do with the healing. The healing. Okay, so... We've only touched down on a topic that is massive in scope and in detail. But it would be remiss of us and unkind of us not to deal with the reality of the fact that the statistic is somewhere up around uh, four or five, one out of every four or five ladies in the United States have had an abortion. It is overwhelmingly true um, that uh, half of all abortions take place in the age group between 18 and 25. The reason is, is because they're unmarried and promiscuous. It's part of the reason why we had to adopt an evolutionary framework and worldview so that we could do away with a moral framework so that we could live out the fleshly pleasures. And so we live unaccountable. It's unspeakable what goes on on our college campuses. More abortions take place apart from downtown New York City on our, around our college campuses than any other place. It's because it is a moral sexual free-for-all. It's outrageous, it's shameful, it's despicable. They know it and they do nothing about it, the leadership. So then you have young girls who all they want to do is be loved, have fun, whatever, personally being victimized in a lot of ways. I'm not saying that young men aren't on occasion involved in the emotional despair of the results of abortion. But I would acknowledge this morning that one of the things that needs to be addressed is just the personal damage of living in a culture that has acclimated itself to the acceptance of killing the unborn. And so one of the questions that I think is very important to answer and that I think is a very important question to the assistance of the next generation and young people because we must recognize how so pressed into the mold and the thought processes of the world the next generation is, the young people, people 30 and under especially. It is very difficult to think outside of what they understand to be normal and to think that at some level, how is that wrong? I think that for the most part, none of us believe that the United States is worse than Hitler's Germany. And we are many times worse in our tolerances and in the reality of the bloodshed that has taken place. But because it's out of sight and because it's quiet and because they have no voice of their own. And so let's address one important question. It is a question that is evolving. The question is, is the unborn baby really human? Because if we can dehumanize the unborn, then we appease our conscience 
then we realize this is not really a big deal. It's an appendage. It's a massive tissue. It is a non-entity. It really doesn't matter. And I think that the answer to this question should be very helpful to our young people and helpful to all of us, as well as embolden us to recognize that, no, we refuse to lose our mind with the rest of the culture. And so we, we will not give in to the world's answer to that question, that it is a non-entity, it's my body, I will do with it what I want. It's not your body, because number three, the answer is clear. How do you answer that question? Now, I want to comment that this question and the answer are changing and shifting, and the response to it now are becoming even more brazenly pagan. That is, that with the reality of ultrasound and medical advancement, where we can literally see in the womb and recognize that clearly this is not an appendage, clearly this is not a massive tissue, that we are now hearing, and so it was at one time the question on the forefront of the battle, proving that it was a human and therefore should not be murdered innocently, that it was wrong. But now what they're saying, they are slowly acknowledging they being the pro-death movement, acknowledging it is undeniable at some level that it's probably not just a mass of tissue, but we don't care if it's a human, we're still going to kill it. And we've shown our baseness even at another level, particularly with young people in mind, and I recognize that our senior high teen, our teens are away on retreat this weekend. Um, with Larry Moyer here next week, I felt I couldn't bump it. So what's the answer? One of the things that's on my heart as a pastor and for the church is that that we not allow ourselves to be bumped outside of a logical thinking. So part of the answer, letter A, is simply the logical argument. There are many arguments, but I want to give us just some specific points, all of which can be expanded, all of which are very simplistically presented this morning, but I think are rock-solidly sound in their logic, undeniable, at the same level, for example, of the evolutionists who would say something can come from nothing without an outside-causing agent. I refuse to capitulate to that logic. I refuse to capitulate to people saying that without a God, without any external forces, that something can come from nothing. People who will not admit that a chair can come from nowhere without a designer, without a factory, without a blueprint, without a laborer, will say that the human brain, the human eye, the human capillaries, the, the pulmonary system can come from nothing, the entire universe. It's ridiculous in its logic. Do not give in and never be embarrassed to simply stand on simple sound logic. For example, the logical answer to the question, is the unborn baby really human, is is summed up in one of my favorite quotes by Norman Geisler, who's an apologist and a theologian. And he said, No one disputes that human embryos have human parents. Why then should anyone argue that a human embryo is not human? No biologist has any difficulty identifying an unborn pig as a pig or an unborn horse as a horse. Why then should an unborn human be considered anything but human? It's a simple logic. It's, we could expand the, the logical point with other arguments. How can a female mother, all mothers are female, have a male inside of her and then say it's, an, it's part of her body? It is an appendage. 
It's, an, it's a separate entity, has a separate brainwave, has a separate blood type often, has, has, a, has its own distinct heartbeat, its own fingerprints. It is totally, logically speaking, clearly, a separate individual with separate chromosomes, separate DNA, nesting in the mother's womb. Don't be embarrassed to be pro-life. Don't be embarrassed to disagree with the majority. Second answer to the question, is the unborn baby really a human, comes from the medical argument. Medical advances have made it possible for premature babies as young as 20 weeks to survive outside of the womb. If they are human outside of the womb at 20 weeks, in, uh, why are they not human inside of the womb at 20 weeks? We're, we're melding a logic and a medical, aren't we? This is the same baby, Dr. A. Liley, uh, father of modern fetiology, fetiology, some years ago said, this is the same baby we are caring for before and after birth. Who before birth can be ill and needed diagnosis and treatment just like any other patient. So if it can happen before birth, why isn't it consistent that after birth... How is it that, how is it that the brightest minds and the highest offices of our lands and those responsible for giving instruction to young people at university level and high school level and junior high level then would be able to argue that even at nine months with a partial birth in place, you can then destroy life. It's an unbelievable logic. It's heinous. It's totally contrary to simple logic. It's totally contrary to the medical world. Conclusion, if it's the same baby before the before, baby and same patient before and after birth, then it is as human before it is born as after it is born. Simple. For us who are Bible-believing Christians, and I assume I'm speaking to the majority of people here, the third argument is an argument that we must hold on to regardless of what anybody else says, and it is the biblical argument, the biblical argument. Now, granted, we have no direct statement in the Bible that says abortion is murder. We have no direct statement in the Bible that says an unborn baby is a separate and viable human being on its own from the moment of conception. But what I want you to see, number one, is the personhood of the unborn that is presented in Scripture. These are very common Scriptures in as we deal with, with pro-life arguments, the first one flipped to Jeremiah chapter 1. And this is a statement about Jeremiah, um, how God had a plan for him. But what I want you to see, and you can argue that this was unique to Jeremiah and is not particular to all human births. I disagree with that. But what I want you to see more than anything else is I want you to see the personhood that is granted to the unborn Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. It's, it's the personal pronoun you that God uses speaks specifically to the personhood of Jeremiah. I'm talking about you, Jeremiah. I'm not talking about a master. I'm talking about you before you were born, when you were in the womb. You, a real person. There's personhood that is described. Now over to Psalm 139. This is, 
This is doubtless the classic passage where God describes his touch on the unborn and his involvement in, in prenatal life and, and, and preborn life. Psalm 139, beginning with verse 13. God says, the psalmist, the psalmist says of God, for you formed my inward parts. All right, so God is involved in conception. God is involved in the development of the unborn. God is intimately involved. In, involved. Now, granted, in the same way that God makes corn grow by the regular uh, falling of rain and the rising of the sun every morning, God has systems in place that he has ordained, that he uses, that are ultimately his personal touch to make these things happen. So God has laws in place. That when a father and mother come together, that a new life is conceived and the chromosome count is in place. And immediately a DNA chain is created and immediately every single code, every single detail of information is programmed almost instantaneously at conception. And it's the way it will always be. It will never be less and it will never be more. And God says, I do that. I made that. That's my system. And I formed you in your inward parts, the psalmist said. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. You knit. It's great. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Deep in our souls, we know this is true, don't we? So the healing, how does the healing take place at a personal level? Romans chapter 5 says that where sin was present, grace did much more abound. There's a typo on the next bullet point. It's not Romans 6 1, it's Romans 8 1. And that says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now, what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ. I want to conclude our service, though, with a choir number. And we just, uh, we're, uh, we're needing to go. But I very much, letter B, our final point is nationally. How do we heal nationally? Can I say without being in despair that we are beyond repair Nationally, humanly speaking. I don't think the, the, the second coming of Ronald Reagan or anything else could turn the hearts of our nation. We are a base people other than the fact that God would bring revival to our land. That God would renew a fear of himself. That there would be a renewed sense that we have a creator. And because we have a creator, we are accountable but I think it's appropriate letting the choir speak for us. Choir, will you please stand and come up? Letting the choir speak for us that we beg God for mercy. Lord, have mercy on our nation, for we have sinned. Father, in Jesus' name, would you be merciful to us as a nation? Would you hold back your wrath and your anger? Would you bring revival? Would you renew in the minds and hearts of educators and teachers and, and um, people who are responsible for teaching others a renewed fear, a, a, a renewed sense of simple logic and recognizing that we have a creator? Would you awaken our Supreme Court? Would you, would you overwhelm our president with a horrible fear of the damnation and judgment that is his? That he would speak up for the unborn. That he would point his nation to Christ and to God. Father, would you wake up the, the pulpits of our land 
and the pastors and, and those responsible for spiritual instruction who are cowards and who are afraid and, and, and who in the name of intellectualism despise their own Bibles. Father, would you somehow preserve the hearts and minds of our little boys and girls? Would you give a confidence to our teenagers? Would you give them self-control and the fruit of the Spirit to maintain their purity and their virginity until their wedding day? Would you help our little boys and girls understand through creation and through their science books the reality of the marvel of what it means to be part of your creation and to recognize that life, human life, is distinct from all other forms of life and that we're created in your image Father, would you help us to live out the gospel? Would you help us to, to recognize that, um, that Jesus Christ alone paid the price to cover this kind of sin? That we would be humble, that we would be broken, that we would be in prayer, that we would be active and participants in the political process as we can in, in making a difference in the lives of young people. Father, sometimes we don't even know how to pray, but we ask for your blessing. We ask for your mercy to be poured out on us. We ask for your forgiveness personally and nationally. We ask for you to show us how to go from here and live righteous lives to let our lights shine in a dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.